Well, good afternoon. It's very, very good to be with you guys once again. I can't believe it's been five years. Long overdue. Not from a, a bad visit last time or a lack of desire to see you. Just life circumstances and a thing called COVID kind of changed the world just a little bit, didn't it? But uh, so good to be with you again. And Andy, thank you for your very kind and generous um, introduction. Uh, it's good to be with you again, my friend. And uh, looking forward to talking more about the ministry this afternoon during the potluck, if you can join us. Thankful to you for your partnership through the years, for your prayers, for your financial support, and for sending Andy to join me in, in Haiti some years ago. It was a real joy to have him on the field with us. And uh, he left quite the impressions with the pastors in Haiti. I was just with them three weeks ago in the Dominican Republic, and they sent their greetings to, to Andy and to your church. They also are thankful for your partnership. Well, it is a joy for me uh, to open the scriptures for you this afternoon, and we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 11, um, and I want you to pay particular notice as I read to Hannah's song and to notice how quite similar it is to Mary's song. Um, it's no mistake that we had the Magnificat uh, read by Joel earlier. Um, these songs are very close to each other, and there's a reason for that. So let me read from you from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 11, and then we will pray to God and ask him for help, okay? There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah's wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And a rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So in drawn year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. She said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, 
and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bowl, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bowl, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes more and make poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, Lord are the, pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, as we sang a few minutes, some moments ago, you move in mysterious ways your wonders to perform. And as we sang that, Lord, I couldn't help but think of Hannah who must have found the bud that you gave her year after year a bitter taste. But we see in the story how you, the God of great reversals, turned it into a flower that was sweet and fragrant. For that is what you do, our God. And so as we look at the story of Hannah and think about darkness we might be facing in the present or perhaps the past or in the future, 
We pray that you would teach us wonderful things about how you are a God of reversals and darkness does not get the last answer, but resurrection does. We thank you, Lord, that your word comes down from the heavens like rain and snow and causes it to bud and flourish. May your word have its way in us now. Help us to cast aside the burdens that we carry and to listen intently to you. Speak to us through your word, Father, and give us faith and hope in you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by asking you a question. How many of you have faced a time in your life when you were in a desperate situation? Maybe you felt like your back was against the wall, the odds were stacked against you, you weren't sure there was a way forward. Perhaps whatever you were facing or are facing now seemed impossible. What did you do? Did you try to lift your way out of it? Make a few calls, make a few moves, call on your resources or friends to lift you out. But you do all these things that we normally all do to find our way out, and yet you find that things haven't changed. You're still desperate. Your back is still against the wall. The odds still feel like they're against you. What then? What do you do? The Bible is filled with stories of people in desperate circumstances. And in the Bible, so often we meet people like ourselves, unlikely people, at times facing impossible odds in life, finding ourselves in desperate situations, and then God shows up. And when he does, we see great reversals, which is the theme of this passage, which is the theme of the song that Hannah sings, which is the theme of the Magnificat that Mary sang in Luke 1, and is the theme of the books of First and Second Samuel. Our God is a God of great reversals. As I thought about this, one of my favorite reversals in Scripture is the Apostle Paul. His life story defies logic. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul's life did a 180. He was going one way, and he literally went another way after that. He went from being a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer in the church. He went from being an enemy of the church to being one of the foundations of the church. He went from putting Christians in prison to being imprisoned himself for being in Christ and writing letters to Christians from prison. And Paul himself, if you read Acts, faced incredibly desperate situations. Often he found himself in prison, beaten, his back against the wall, desperate situations, seemingly impossible odds, and God showed up again and again and again. And in this passage today, we're going to see a great reversal. We meet a woman named Hannah, a desperate woman facing difficult circumstances and impossible odds. And as the text shows us, year after year after year after year. But then watch what happens when God shows up. So question, 
Where are we in the story? Where we are, are we in the story of the Bible? Well, this is what's called the time of the judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And the end of Judges says, and as a result of that, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's also a time when there was a famine in God's word. It says later on in 1 Samuel that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. So there's no king. The word of the Lord is rare. They're in the time of the judges, and everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. It's a bleak time in Israel. Why? They had failed in their conquest of Canaan. They mixed with the Canaanites and started worshiping their gods as God warned them not to do. So there's judgment. There's a civil war between the tribes of Israel and Benjamin. God goes on to say they have rejected him as king. The Philistines, their mortal enemies, are on the rise. Eli's sons are corrupt priests. They're not the only ones. And again, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. We can sum that up by saying it's a desperate and perhaps we might say a barren time in the life of God's people. Darkness and desperation. So again, the question, what do you do when you face desperate circumstances? Well, in the midst of this desperate time, we meet a desperate woman named Hannah. And that's how the author begins this story in this bleak time. We meet in verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1, a barren woman. Look with me at how the author describes Hannah. Chapter 1, verse 2, she had no children. Verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, and again it's repeated, the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 7, so it went on, year by year. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse 15, she describes herself as a woman troubled in spirit, pouring out her soul before the Lord. Verse 16, she says, All along I've been speaking out of anxiety and vexation. Verses 7 to 8 say that it was so bad she wept and would not eat. Do you see this woman? Hannah lived in restless torment. Hannah's barrenness wasn't merely physical. What would you have said to Hannah? What do you do when you face desperate circumstances? One of my favorite hymns is What a Friend We Have in Jesus, which we will sing afterwards. And the reason why I asked Anne if we could close with that hymn is because the story behind it is really quite extraordinary. It was written by a man called Joseph Scriven, an Irishman. And when he was engaged in Ireland, the night before his wedding, his fiancée drowned and died. He was desperately sad. He sunk into a depression, 
it was so bad he decided to get on a ship and go to Canada and to try to start a new life. And as he started this new life in Canada, he fell in love again with a Christian woman. He became engaged once again. And shortly before their wedding, she became very ill, and she too passed away. His mother's far off in Ireland, far along before social media, and she's very concerned for him. And he wants to assure her that though he has faced much affliction, he continues to trust in the Lord. And so he wrote, what a friend we have in Jesus. And what a privilege it is to take our burdens to him in prayer. He wrote that hymn to comfort himself and to comfort others. That's what he did out of his great affliction and desperation. And that hymn calls us to take our pain, our grief, our trials, and our burdens to God in prayer. This is one of the great things about God in prayer, isn't it? We don't have to hide for him or pretend to him that everything's going well. Hannah certainly didn't. She poured out her heart to God. She was open to him about the fact that she was vexed and distressed and bitter. She poured her heart out to God. And the hymn calls us to do the same thing. Hannah and her family are different. Unlike most of Israel, they didn't do what was right in their own eyes. Her husband was a godly man who led the family year by year. They did the sacrifices, they paid their vows, and they did before the Lord what they said what they would do. And Hannah, no matter how bad it got, she never stopped talking to God. This woman prayed. Listen, verse 10. Hannah was distressed, but what did she do? She prayed to the Lord. Verse 11, she made a vow, if you will remember me, I will give the son you would give me to you all the days of his life. Verse 12, she continued praying before the Lord. Verse 15, it says she poured out her soul before the Lord. Verse 16, all along she's been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. Hannah is wrestling with God. And I want to be bold to say, I think she was angry with God. Bitterness and vexation, how does that sound in prayer? Why are you letting this happen to me, God? How long will this go on? Are you going to let this woman irritate me and grieve me year after year after year? Are you ever going to open my womb? Am I ever going to have children? Why don't you hear me? Why don't you answer my prayer? She's wrestling with God. Why? Why did Hannah keep crying out to God? Even though she was vexed and bitter and in distress because she knows that God is bigger than the odds. And he is. See, whenever we're facing odds that we feel are difficult or impossible, we always have a choice, friends. Option one is to deaden desire. It's through a series of choices to inwardly give up and sigh and say, you know what? 
there's no point talking to God about it anymore. I've been praying for years. Nothing's changed. I've been praying for my parents' salvation for 26 years. Still don't see a softening in their heart. That's my story. You know what? Why bother? Why bother hoping? And so we deaden desire, cynicism takes over, and we give up hope, and we stop talking to God. Or we can wait for the Lord. And that's what Hannah did. Year after year after year. Her husband certainly wasn't helpful, was he? Verse 8. Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? He knows why. She's been barren for many years. Aren't I better you than ten sons? Any husband ever given advice like that or said like that? Something like that when your wife's hurting? Doesn't go over very well, does it? <laughs> not helpful. I think Hannah's husband, Elkanah, the godly man that he was, was being optimistic. I don't know about you, but I don't find optimism helpful at all. Because for me, optimism denies darkness. It denies the reality of pain. Don't worry, like, it'll, it'll be better tomorrow. I mean, sunnier days are coming. Hang in there. Like, it's all good. I mean, things can only get better. That doesn't help people. Hannah didn't need optimism, and she needed her husband to engage her pain and her bitterness with her and listen to her and to get on his knees and pray with her. Hannah wasn't optimistic. She was something far greater. She was hopeful and prayerful. See, hope, biblical hope, is so much harder than optimism because hope involves waiting. And some of us know that sometimes the wait can be very long indeed. Sometimes the wait can feel like a torment. Hope involves groaning from deep inside. In words that are so hard to express, the Holy Spirit comes and helps you express those things to God inwardly. Hope is about longing for something. Again, verse 3, so it went on year by year. But biblical hope is also expectant. In Psalm 27, a psalm of David, uh, David speaks about his adversaries and God's adversaries and at the end, after speaking about his adversaries, David says this at the very end of Psalm 27. I think it's verse 13. He says, I believe I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Meaning, though I have these adversaries in difficult situations now, I believe through faith and hope I will look upon the goodness of the Lord, not just in the age to come, but in the land of the living. That doesn't mean resurrection now and everything's going to be great, but it means we can taste the goodness of the Lord. That bitter flower we, we sang about can become fragrant sweet in this life also. And twice at the end of that psalm, David says this, wait for the Lord. And that's exactly what Hannah did in the midst of her agony grief, and despair. 
I want to ask you, do you feel, be honest with yourself, is it foolish to hope? I spoke with a pastor friend of mine recently, and he said, you know what? I don't think hoping is smart. I said, why not, brother? He said, it doesn't feel safe. It feels like the odds are against you to hope. What if you get disappointed? What if your hopes don't come to fruition? Or what if it takes a lifetime? It's not safe. But then what's the alternative to biblical hope? See, hope is an acknowledgement of our powerlessness, friends. That we can't always lift our way out or think our way out or make a move out of the desperate situations life puts us in. Hope acknowledges, I'm powerless to do this. I'm going to hope in the one for whom all things are possible. But the reality for all of us is that the alternatives to hope are easier. Again, we can deaden desire and just say, I'm done. I'm done, God. I'm done talking to you about this. I'm done talking to people about this. There's no point. Nothing's going to change. I'm done. And in cynicism, we can say something like this. I'm sure we've all uttered. I certainly have. Look, I'm just being realistic. <laughs> just being realistic with you, God. Just being realistic with you people. Nothing's going to change. But was the resurrection realistic? It certainly wasn't. Biblical hope acknowledges that God can do the miraculous. And Hannah, this very real woman, who clearly had a deep and resolute faith, knew that. God can do the miraculous. God is bigger than the odds. How do we know that? Let me ask you, how does the Bible begin? With barrenness. It said the spirit hovered over the deep, and it was void, and it was dark. The world began with barrenness. And when God and his life-giving word and light met with barrenness, what happens? Light and life, and beauty and newness, and creation, a beginning, a start, did you know that Israel started with a barren woman? Sarah was barren. In fact, the first three women in Israel, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, were all barren. Is that just a coincidence? No, that's God telling us something. What is God saying to us? He's saying that he loves working in the barren places. That for God, barrenness is not the end. It's the beginning. And so understanding that and believing that helps us to see that biblical faith is radical. And biblical faith is radical because it's a call to not surrender your life to the present circumstances. And the siren voices of our culture and sometimes well-meaning friends and family or our own hearts can tell us that. Just give up. It can't get better. There's no way out. Biblical faith says no way. Don't give in to the present circumstances. Isaiah 49 says, hope in the Lord and wait. Because those who wait for me, says the Lord, 
shall not be put to shame. Weeping may tarry for the night, and that night may be long, but joy will come in the morning. One commentator said this, barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving action. Genesis 1, barrenness was the arena in which God created the world and all that is in it. And the barrenness of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel is where God chose to start the story of his people, Israel. And Hannah, this barren woman, is the one God chose to give birth to Samuel, the last of the judges, a great judge who, of course, anointed King David, who appointed to the greater king, Jesus Christ, son of David and son of God. So Hannah did not give up hope. She's like that persistent widow in Luke 18 who keeps crying to the Lord for justice day and night who wouldn't take no for an answer. But how about you? Do you wait in hopeful expectation? Do you cry out to God? Are you real with him in your prayers? Do you wrestle with him? God can take it. So we begin with this barren woman, but that's not where the story ends. Now we have a great reversal. God shows up. Look at verse 19 with me. They rose early in the morning, worshipped before the Lord, then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. God met Hannah's barren womb and her barren heart with life just like he did in Genesis. And so the prophet and judge Samuel is born, the one who will anoint King David. Great reversals are coming to barren Israel, all from a barren woman. This is no mistake. It's God's life-giving activity. And what does Hannah do? She keeps her vow. Verse 22 Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. That is exactly what she promised to God earlier in the chapter when she cried out for a son. I will give him to you. And this woman keeps her vow. And so in verse 20, after she weans him, verse 24, sorry, after she weans him, they take him up with the sacrifice and they bring him to the house of the Lord when Samuel was young. And Samuel is given to the Lord. Verse 28, Samuel worshiped the Lord there in his house. Chapter two, verse 11, the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. And later in this book, it is said that Samuel grew in stature and everyone in Israel knew he was a prophet. And he was the one God used to choose David 
king of Israel. All from a barren woman who did not give up hope, but waited on the Lord, cried out to the Lord, held on to hope in the midst of desperation. And that reversal leads to the story of the reversals in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. The woman who's experienced a great reversal sings about them. Listen to her tone. Think about how she was when she's crying out to the Lord and talking about that to Eli, how she speaks now. Chapter 2, verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. She has experienced God showing up and beating the odds. She's experienced deliverance. She has experienced answered prayer in her hour of desperate need. And she says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoiced in your salvation. Penina can torment her no more. It's over. She's given birth to a son, Samuel who's in the temple, and so her heart exalts. So she's gone from bitterness to rejoicing. She's gone from torment to exaltation. And so she worships the Lord. Verse two, there's none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Where do, where do psalms of praise and songs and prayers like that come from? They come from people who've been in the depths. They come from people who've been in the storms and felt like they're tossed to and fro on the waves like billows on the sea. Those are the people who can sing and cry out to God with conviction. There's no one like you. There's no other rock but you. Because who showed up in that hour of need? The Lord God did. And so she can say, talk no sooner very proudly. Don't let arrogance come from your mouth. The Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. And then come the reversals. Look at them all. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Verse 5, those who are full have hired themselves for bread. They're starving now. But those who are hungry aren't hungry anymore. The barren has seven children, but she who had many is forlorn. The Lord kills. The Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. He makes poor. He makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Why? Because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Do you hear the song of reversals? But some years ago, the woman singing the song was barren and bitter and distressed and vexed. But God showed up. And this song that comes from a deep well of praise comes from this woman who has experienced God's reversals. And as we said earlier, it doesn't end there. This song points to another song, the song sung by Mary. In the Magnificat, when she is told that the greater King Jesus, son of David, is coming into the world to perform reversals. And what does she do in the Magnificat? She also sings a reversals from a lowly woman. <laughs> so here's the question as we near our close, my friends. Can the closed womb 
of our present circumstances be broken open to give us a new future. Maybe that's you right now. Maybe for some time you have an inner torment or a quiet despair and you feel like this circumstance is like a closed and dark womb. Can it be broken into? Can your circumstances change into a new future? Can the bitter bud ever become a sweet flower? The answer is yes. Because 2,000 years ago, God took on flesh and broke into the dark, desolate, barren womb of our world, and Jesus ushered in an entire new reality. And he is the one who stands in our world and says, I am the light of the world, and whoever walks with me will not walk in darkness but in light. And he is the one who says to our broken world and our broken homes and our broken churches and our broken countries and our broken lives and says, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus, through his coming and his life and his death and rection, has given birth to a new future for all who believe in him. And the scriptures say that Jesus brought life and light and immortality to all who believe. And that, friends, means that Jesus is the hope for the world because he's the only one who can bring the reversals we're all crying out for from the depths of our hearts. Is our world broken? It most certainly is. Is our country broken? It most certainly is. Do we see brokenness in our workplace? We certainly do. Have we experienced brokenness in our families? We certainly have. Do we experience brokenness in our hearts? We certainly have. Are our lives filled with brokenness? Yes, they are. But the broken body of Jesus was resurrected. And so, friends, remember this if you remember nothing else. Whatever you're facing, if you are in Christ, brokenness is not the final word. It's resurrection. In First and Second Samuel, God works with the most unlikely people in the most desperate circumstances against seemingly impossible odds. And God enters these lives and stories and he brings light where there's darkness, he brings hope where there's despair, and he brings life where there was barrenness. Hannah's suffering and her steadfast prayer and hope in God led to a new reality. And God loves to do it with the people who have the least evidence that hope is realistic. And I want to remind you, God is still performing great reversals today. And we'll talk about that in our missionary sharing time. I've got a story for you that's, that's an incredible reversal. And all of these are possible because after dying for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead. And that is the greatest reversal in history. And his resurrection and his power makes all things possible. And now we who were dead 
are alive because of him. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, you move in mysterious ways your wonders to perform. You plant your footsteps in the sea and you ride upon the storm. Deep in the dark and the hidden minds we live in with your never-failing skill, you fashion bright designs and work your sovereign will. We thank you for the story of Hannah. We thank you that you are a God who loves to work in the barren places. And that barrenness is the arena of your life-giving activity. Help us to remember that the world started with barrenness, but that's not how it ends. And though our lives may experience barrenness, whether it's physical or spiritual or mental and emotional, that's not the end. You are still the God of great reversals, and we can taste the goodness of resurrection now and in its fullness in the age to come. And so we ask that when we face these desperate circumstances, you would cause us to continually cry out to you in prayer and in biblical hope, waiting on you who lifts the needy from the ash heap, who lifted your son from the grave. And we ask things in his name. Amen.